Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. It's National Arson Awareness Week for 2021, and today we're talking about this year's theme, which is arson during civil unrest. The U.S. Fire Administration designates one week every year for National Arson Awareness Week, and it's a time when departments are asked to highlight critical action that first responders can take to combat arson crime. This year, the IWI partnered with the USFA to bring the webinar Arson During Civil Unrest, an Unjustifiable Crime to the Profession. Two IWI members were on that panel. We have a link on this podcast page to this year's information page on National Arson Awareness Week. The IWI thanks the USFA and the other partners for their leadership on this issue. So in support of National Arson Awareness Week, as a part of the IWI's commitment to driving the national conversation on fire investigation, arson crime, and fire prevention, we're devoting today's podcast to arson during civil unrest. With us to talk about this is ATF National Response Team Supervisory Special Agent Certified Fire Investigator Dixon Robin. With the NRT, Agent Robin has responded to large fire and post-blast scenes across the country to conduct origin and cause investigations and assist in criminal investigations to determine if violations of federal and or state law have occurred. Dixon Robin is also an IAAI CFI. Dixon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rod. First, just in case people aren't sure, can you tell the audience what the ATF National Response Team is and, and what it does? ATF's National Response Team is a specialized uh, group of investigators and subject matter experts put together by ATF to respond to larger and more catastrophic fire and explosion events around the country. And it's really designed to be a force multiplier. So um, in those instances where you have a very large event and maybe you have the know-how, but not the uh, not the manpower or not the equipment, or maybe you need a few extra specialists like engineers or origin and cause guys, uh, we can come in and partner with your agency and help decompress that investigation to a manageable level. Um, our goal is not to come in and take over an investigation, nor to uh, necessarily solve it. It'd be great if we could solve it while we're there. But really, the goal is to uh, muster all these resources and all these people and put them in one place. And like I said, decompress that investigation so that your agency with two or three people can drive it over you know, the goal line the last two or three yards. That's nice. And I'm sure uh, that equipment and expertise is greatly appreciated. So uh, unfortunately, current events have led us to this discussion, but arson during civil unrest has a long history. Can, can you talk about the history of using arson as a weapon, maybe an example or two? Arson is um, first and foremost a violent crime, a violent act. And I think uh, that's where we almost have a fork in the road immediately. A lot of people don't realize how dangerous fire really is and uh, the devastation and the violence it brings to people and their property. Um, I, I like to say fire is so dangerous, you get a fire truck parked outside your house and you could still die in that fire in your house. That's certainly true. I saw that firsthand in an arson homicide case here in Rochester, New York. So uh, fire is readily available. The things to make fire or to promote fire like gasoline or lighter fluid are readily available. They don't cost a lot of money. You don't have to go to school to understand it. And fire is used as a weapon quite often. Um, in these civil disturbance 
arena, fire is very definitely used. It's been used consistently over the years. Uh, if you harken back to the 60s and the 70s and, and the disturbances then and then up until recently, um, just numerous, numerous acts of arson. And some of those are uh, directed at destroying property or making a statement, but some of those are also directed at hurting, maybe even trying to kill people. And that's why we take it so seriously. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you being there. Can you can you talk about how you've been involved in the investigation of fires that have occurred during some civil unrest? I understand that's in your recent past and what it's like as an ATF member and team member when, when that begins, the investigation. The summer ATF engaged in numerous investigations throughout the country, uh, cities all over the place investigating fires related to the civil unrest, the use of, you know, destructive devices like Molotov cocktails, explosives like fireworks and even pipe bombs. Uh, and in my instance, with the national response team, we were activated uh, in several cities, Chicago, Kenosha, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, we stood by in Louisville and Portland. Um, we were We were all over the map, but significantly, the Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, missions were incredible. I mean, incredible amount of devastation. The atmosphere was um, fairly tense. And the operations that we conducted were um, unusual, to say the least. And so in that instance, out in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, we did over 150 fire scenes in a very short period of time um, in an environment that at times was hostile to us. And at times uh, we didn't have a lot of resources or manpower because of the, uh, you know, the obvious tensions that were going on in the community. And we were able to complete that mission. Um, you know, thankfully nobody got hurt and uh, we were able to make plenty of arrests and there are ongoing active, many, many, I would say in the hundreds of active investigations, ATF investigations are still going forward at this late date. So just because the riots are over and just because the damage and devastation is getting cleaned up doesn't mean we're, we're stopping. We have many targets that we're going after people that uh, frankly need to answer to what they did during that time uh, as to lighten fires and uh, you know throwing devices around that sort of thing. So how do the different investigative agencies cooperate on these cases? How's the, how does it typically structured? Right. So um, it is a very much a partnership. Um, there's no other way to do it. There's no there's no one agency in this world that can work alone and handle uh, these sort of events. And when I say partnership, it's a true partnership. Everybody gets that seat at the table. I know it sounds cliche, especially coming from a federal guy. But, you know, we are not, uh, for example, we're not native uh, Minneapolis, you know, people from Minneapolis. We don't know the lay of the land. Uh, we don't know the backstory to some of the stuff. We don't know all the resources that are in play. So when we're out there in Minneapolis, we have, um, not only do we have detectives from the police department, but we have their intel officers embedded with us. We have the county um, intel unit embedded with us. We have all the ATF assets, but then we have all sorts of uh, fire investigation unit personnel assigned to the team. And when I say team, I mean, you know, we talk about the national response team, but the team really is all those agencies, you know, 
we had eight or nine different agencies working with us in Minneapolis, and we were just one piece of that very big picture um, when it came to the civil unrest. Um, we worked very closely, for example, with FBI. Uh, the U.S. Marshal Service was our protective unit. So when we went in to actually investigate these fire scenes, we had a cover team uh, from U.S. Marshal Special Operation Group to actually provide security and provide a perimeter for us. And there were times where they told us, hey, crowd's coming our way. We need to go. And we had to stop what we were doing and, and leave our scene. Um, so it's very much a team effort. And it's very much geared to, um, you know, provide answers to those agencies that needed answers. So obviously, uh, the Minneapolis police and fire departments need to solve these crimes. But we need to provide them with the wherewithal to prosecute those crimes as well as they go through this very uh, difficult and sort of transitional period in their history, as you can imagine. Um, the FBI had a slightly different mission uh, that we coordinated with them on in terms of looking at broader picture, national scope of things. And we had just kind of a two-way street of flowing information and investigative efforts so that um, they could slide something to us that would be relevant to our investigations. And if we found something, we'd slide something to them uh, as well. So at the end of the day, it is a team effort. Um, ATF maybe played the largest role in the arson part of it, but you know there are many other things going on uh, as we are investigating these things. And, and all those agencies kind of overlap. And at some point we are just in a big circle, providing each other with information and resources as needed. Well, I know as a country, we're glad you guys are doing that. And, and I, I'm sort of surprised, and maybe I shouldn't be. I, I, it's sort of interesting to me that you have a protective detail. You said from the, from the U.S. Marshals. Yeah, so we ourselves are armed and, and can protect ourselves to some degree. Uh, we also, have, ATF has its own uh, specialized uh, tactical team, special response team. Um, but as you can imagine, we are in the midst of riots around the country and, and resources are, are thin everywhere. And so we had the marshal service on the ground available. Uh, we went for it. You know, there's no reason to hesitate. There's no sort of a rivalry or territory when it comes to the agencies. And, um, they did a wonderful job. I, 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 uh, really loved having them there because we could concentrate on these fire scenes. And, and again, there were places where uh, during the fire investigations, we were confronted by crowds and marches would head our way. And I don't know if they were necessarily marching towards us, but um, you know, we can come back and do our investigation when we need to. There's no need for us to be there to inflame anything or, or to get, uh, you know, people even more angry, uh, or for whatever it is. Um, yeah. But I can tell you that the, you know, I think it was better safe than sorry. Um, we never were horribly threatened by anybody, but every now and then we had people yelling at us and throwing stuff at us and just the way it was there. Yeah. It's, you know, you can have a gun, but if you're bent over with a shovel and you're digging around, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice yep. to have somebody have yep. your back. So give me a little bit of behind the scenes, because I, I often think about the amount of travel that I've heard folks that are involved in the NRT do. So take us a little behind the scenes of you get a phone call. 
you used to probably get a page. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember at one point uh, being proud when they issued pagers to us. That's how long I've been on the job. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> pagers um, are still cool. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, just roll with that. Keep going with it. Um, yeah. So we are, we're designed, the core group of our team is designed to be very responsive. So uh, I've flown out as late as midnight. I get a call and I've tried to hit a flight at midnight to get somewhere by uh, early the next morning, but we are designed to be on scene in some shape or fashion within a few hours. Uh, sometimes the bulk of the team won't arrive for maybe 12 hours, maybe 18 hours, but you know, time is of the essence. Um, if only because, you know, our partners are calling us because they need resources. And, you know, the one resource we have on the federal side is time and money. Um, most local agencies don't have the luxury of those resources. They might have some of it, but at some point, uh, the local arson unit is going to have to go out and investigate the three fires that happened the night after we got there. And then the seven fires that happened the day or two after we got there. And then the two foot car fires that happened three days after we got there, like life does not stop in these, uh, jurisdictions. And so, um, I always make it a point to get our team there as quickly as possible. So we're designed, we're on call, the call comes in. Um, the approval process within ATF is very simple. A local agency asks ATF, hey, can we have this resource? We ask uh, an ATF CFI to go up there to the fire scene just to take a look at it, make sure that, yeah, in fact, our NRT would be of assistance. Um, and then once that happens, it's literally two phone calls within the chain of command and we're out the door. I page out our guys, uh, tell folks to get a flight, uh, as soon as possible, where to fly into. And then we worry about the logistics as we're traveling out there in terms of where we're going to stay. And, um, but we're prepared to go out there for, you know, two, three weeks if we need to. And, um, like I said, decompress that fire scene or that fire investigation. So. Um, you know, I'd love to say that, you know, we're just waiting with bated breath. No, we're, we're doing other work in the meantime, but if a call comes in, we're designed to drop whatever we're doing, everything's packed, ready to go. And we're going to go out the door. So you've talked about some of the unique considerations, you know, dealing with the civil unrest, uh, other things that make investigating these fires tied to civil unrest different from, uh, you know, a, a typical fire that you might investigate? Yeah, I think uh, there's a few things that makes them a little unique. And uh, first off is that most of these fires are um, long in duration. They, for the most part, tend to be black hole fires because, uh, because of the unrest, the fire department response is slower, a lot slower due to obvious reasons. They're, they're overtaxed, uh, may not be safe for them to go in. So um, we do have some fires that are smaller fires that just peter out, but most of the fires are pretty um, large and destructive sort of fire scenes. Uh, what we focused on, frankly, was the uh, going in there and trying to find evidence of the use of a, an incendiary device like a Molotov cocktail, trying to find containers or something related to ignitable liquids, and then trying to find uh, DVR or, um, you know, security camera 
hardware. Uh, much of what we did was solved, or much of what we solved, I should say, really circled around video evidence. Um, as you imagine, there weren't a lot of, there weren't many cooperative witnesses out there that wanted to provide us with information. But if we could get the cameras from the store or we get the surrounding videotape, or frankly, uh, social media was just a phenomenal help to us. Um, that's where we, we were able to piece things together and track folks. And so um, in that sense, it, it was unique. Maybe the focus was less on um, doing a three or four day scene. We didn't have that luxury. We didn't, you know, with so many fire scenes, uh, we were able to to process those scenes efficiently, but uh, it had to move quickly. And so we had smaller teams on there. And again, part of our focus really was on what are those things that are going to help us um, identify somebody who committed this act and provide us with evidence to maybe even prosecute them. I can imagine with cell phones and camera phones and everything today, just dealing with the mass of video. It used to be that I would talk to you guys. It was like, Hey, it was great. There was a camera mounted, you know, <laughs> and now I get this yeah. feeling like you guys are dealing with potentially hundreds or thousands of sources of video. Does that get cumbersome? Yeah, it, it's insane how much video there was, and at least in these particular instances. And, and I mean, we are still literally going through video. I have a database with about 43,000 entries in it that we're still going over. Um, these are social media clips, things people have turned in and so forth. Uh, at the end of the day, it is very labor intensive. And, you know, you could sit there and have people watching and looking for things. But then at the same time, if you key in on one individual at one fire scene, you want to try to tie that individual into other fire scenes potentially, if, if that's what they're doing. And so, uh, for example, in St. Paul, uh, my, my ATF counterpart over there was leading a team and they were able to track uh, one individual who's good for six to eight fires. Um, but that was a concerted effort, like a targeted video review effort. And at the same time, now you have to look for other people doing other acts. And so it's labor intensive, it's manpower intensive. You've got to have um, some intel folks who know how to draw down that video. And then at the end of the day, that video is all great. But if you don't preserve it, if you don't somehow uh, turn it into evidence, you can't present it as evidence. And then huh, maybe you won't be able to prosecute that guy. So you've got to, on the back end, sit out there and ask these companies to preserve their footage and then fight to get that footage and, and so on and so forth. So yeah. there's a lot of moving parts to that video piece of it but it really is um i think in particularly in an urban area that is a large focus of these investigations yeah i can imagine i mean it, it just sounds like a huge file management job uh yeah just thinking about you know yeah <laughs> you used to go out and get vhs tapes that were at slow speed you know it's... right right <laughs> and and i tell you, you know and uh when we were out there in minneapolis and st paul we called it the dvr hospital and we had a bunch of uh, digital forensic guys, and we were just bringing them recovered DVRs from burnt out fire scenes. You know, every half hour, a new one would come in, and these guys were set up to see if they could recover anything, if it had to be sent off to a clean room. We have a contract with a uh, company that has a clean room that can actually extract data off of, you know, fire uh, 
burnt up computers and DVRs and stuff. And so much like, uh, you remember Cheers, they had Nick Tortelli's TV hospital. We called it the DVR hospital. <laughs> and, um, we, uh, we had great success with in real time, just pulling video off that stuff and trying to get a grip or get some leads generated and, and push out investigators on it. Good to hear. Sounds like a big job. So, yep. so Dixon, could, could you talk about without getting into things that are too sensitive? I mean, there had to be some things that were unique uh, to these investigations tied to these, uh, you know, events. Can, can you talk a little bit about the kinds of things you were finding um, out there? Yeah. Yep. Um, so some of the unique aspects in this centered around maybe the evidence that we were dealing with. And so um, we, we obviously wanted to seek out any sort of DVR recording devices, uh, particularly in these larger stores where there's multiple cameras capturing activity. And what we found um, in several locations was a near surgical removal of DVRs, uh, drives, and those sort of things by people who clearly understood computer hardware, computer hardware architecture, you know, design and engineering. And um, we found this in multiple locations. And so I can't, uh, you know, tell you what that was directly related to because we had, in addition to the unrest, uh, there were groups of people taking advantage of that by using the unrest as a cover to go ahead and, and steal. And, uh, in a very kind of methodical and systematic way. And so there were particular stores of chains that were hit all in the same fashion, we assume by potentially the same group of people uh, in a very kind of quick and surgical manner. Um, what so, about like, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that, you know, it's critical to have somebody available um, to understand you know, how these systems are set up, designed, how they're constructed, and then whether you had somebody in there surgically removing these items. And listen, what's the value of that? The item's gone. Well, who knows? Maybe that person left a thumbprint behind. Maybe that person left DNA on the wires that they pulled, whatever it may be. So you have to be cognizant of the, the evidentiary value of things, even if they're missing. There still might be something left behind that you have to process. And as always, it's it, it's always amazed me how much is left behind after a, what you'd call a black hole fire. But, you know, uh, as far as DNA, yeah. fingerprints, those kinds of things. Yeah, we, we had uh, we processed the Minneapolis third precinct. If you remember uh, the, the police station there that was overrun a three story building with a basement and. Um, you know, I'll just tell you, as a law enforcement person, it was it was devastating to see that to be inside there. It was uh, just left me with a horrible feeling. But you know, obviously, we had a job to do, and we we're going to process that scene um, and try to render answers. And and if somebody needed to go to jail over it, that was our mission. And so, while we're in there, um, you know, we had numerous numerous set fires in there, but we also collected numerous incendiary devices. So ones that had operated and functioned, other ones that hadn't functioned, but were able to look at those devices and, and try to tie them back to similar, you know, similarly made devices at other locations and process those for all the traditional 
uh, evidence that you normally would at a scene where maybe if you only have one of those devices. So, you know, we're looking for fingerprints and DNA as well. And, and we did, we were able to extract that, that sort of evidence. And uh, obviously I can't provide a ton of detail about that because those cases are ongoing, but th those are some very critical pieces of evidence that we were able to recover. What other advice do you have for fire investigators about what they can do now if they become part of one of these investigations of a fire that occurred during civil unrest? Um, you know, are there ways they could prepare for that in advance? Uh, any hints? Yeah, I think what you what you want to do is uh, before it even happens is get with your local uh, police intelligence unit or officer. Maybe you have one in, within your fire investigation unit, um, but you will you will find that the social media exploitation. We have all these fancy terms for it, but just finding stuff on social media is going to be critical, and it's out there. You just have to be timely enough to get it. You have to understand where it is, and you have to understand how to how to bring it down. But uh, even in these events where you didn't need our our team, you know, up here in Rochester, we had some civil unrest recently. And the unit up here, the, the police and fire department guys, along with an ATF agent, um, there were three of them, they just plowed through the social media with the, the local intel group and made several arrests. Um, so the, the first thing to do is to understand that process and get with the people who are experts on social media exploitation. Uh, the second thing is, is to figure out um, how you're going to respond. You know. At the, at the time of the incident is not the time to sit down and make the plan. You want to have some pre-planning meetings. And again, um, from the Fed side, we just love meetings. I know it, it's cliche, but <laughs> it's really worth the effort. <laughs> you know, if you get everybody sitting around a table and just say, hey, when the big one hits, who's going to do what? Who are the shot callers? Who are the decision makers? And who's responsible for which piece of investigation? That's going to save you so much trouble and heartache. Uh, when this stuff breaks loose, because when it breaks loose, you know, everybody's losing their head. Uh, tensions are high. Um, everybody's amped up and you just it's just easier to operate when you have an understanding in place, when you're not meeting people for the first time in the middle of a command post when things are breaking down, you know. Yeah, well, it's, you know, sort of like you guys have always said, you know, sh sharing business cards at the scene is not the it <laughs> shouldn't be the first time. Um, Right, right. So ultimately, I think it's sometimes forgotten, you know, that what you all do is not just about putting away the bad guys or the bad girls. Uh, so with fire investigation, you know, really being about fire prevention, what have we learned about uh, investigation of these recent incidents of arson during civil unrest that we can use to prevent incidents in the future? What's your advice to local communities from what you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, businesses and communities that tried to uh, secure their facilities and maybe secure the, the merchandise or the stock in there fared a lot better than those that didn't. Um, you know, I, I, I know not everybody's made of money, so there's, there's probably a limit to what uh, businesses can do, but certainly securing their locations and removing the fuels, basically is going to save you a lot of heartache and a lot of time. Um, what we found in many of these arsons was that nobody had to bring anything with them. In fact, uh, since a lot of these stores sold lighter fluid, for example, 
people didn't even have to bring ignitable liquids with them, uh, let alone any fuel. And so uh, that, that that's one thing that people can do if they have enough notice and enough wherewithal is to secure the location and, and get stuff out of there. Hmm. Sound like good pieces of advice. What, what am I missing? What uh, other things do you think or, or, or have we covered it all? Do you think that we uh, should share with folks this week? Well, the, 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 the civil, I mean, in terms of the civil unrest fires, I think that um, what you'll find um, is that there may be a small group of bad actors within a very large group of protesters. And that uh, a lot of these folks may be um, driven uh, by their, their politics or, you know, we found a lot of folks that I think were just having a grand old time, frankly. Uh, and so, you know, we don't don't really get into the motive piece of it as much as just trying to track individuals. And you may find that uh, your one guy here is going to be over at another fire and maybe over at another fire and so on and so forth. So the goal is to spend time and understand that uh, during the civil unrest, you know, you're going to be expected to be operational and provide answers, but these are long ball investigations. These, you know, here we are a year later. And as I said, we have, we've got 43,000 uh, more video clips to look at in Minneapolis. We have um, new targets that are being identified and accepted for prosecution. The investigations have to continue. So it's a commitment to keep those investigations going. And so the agencies shouldn't think that once the riots are over that we can go back to our normal MO. You still have work to do, maybe a lot of work. And you can't be afraid to ask for help because again, no one agency, my agency, FBI, whoever it is, no one agency can can do it alone. It's too much work. Well, I'm glad you're uh, helping to work to hold these people responsible. And thanks for talking with us today. It's, uh, it's certainly a timely, topic and uh i think our audience will appreciate the opportunity to to hear what you've had to say so thanks very much dixon thank you my pleasure rod now some news from the iwi when the covid19 pandemic hit hard in the spring of 2020 training opportunities in fire investigation were significantly impacted the conferences and in-person classes that many professionals rely on to build their knowledge stay in compliance with NFPA 1033, and maintain their credentials were canceled. Because CFITrainer.net has been delivering training online for 20 years, we were able to fill some of the gap immediately and were grateful to have had that role. Fire investigation organizations quickly explored ways to take their in-person classes virtual, and platforms like Zoom took off in an instant. Over the last year, the IAAI has had tremendous success offering its in-person classes virtually, Offering this live instruction with a recorded version has made the training accessible to a wider range of professionals who previously weren't able to travel to in-person classes and has decreased the cost of attending classes for those who had come in person in the past. Moving forward, the IWI is resuming its live in-person classes as COVID restrictions in the local jurisdiction permit. At the same time, the IWI will continue to offer live classes virtually so anyone anywhere can attend many classes from their computer. This benefits the fire investigation profession, IWI membership, and the wider community of professionals who work in the investigation of fires. To that end, 
The IWI has built out a new capability on CFITrainer.net to deliver virtual live classes and events permanently. Previously, virtual live classes and events were done as one-offs with a separate testing component on the CFI Trainer platform. Now the live classes and events are being delivered through CFITrainer.net, integrated with Zoom for delivery, and the IWI's member platform for registration. With certificate testing, post-event resources, class replays are all available on CFITrainer.net. Everything is now accessed through CFITrainer.net using your existing login. When you attend a live class and pass the skills challenge test to earn your certificate of completion, that class is automatically added to your CFITrainer.net transcript. If you register but have to miss the class, you simply log in after the class to watch the recorded version, then take the certificate test and access the post-event resources. Bringing live classes and events under the CFITrainer.net umbrella gives you one central place to access all your online training, whether it's pre-recorded modules, live classes and events, resources, or this podcast. It also makes replays and post-event resources easily available. And you'll have the certificate and transcript entry to prove your completion of the live class and event alongside everything else you've taken at CFI Trainer. The live classes and events feature is rolling out this month, so you'll now see live classes and events to register for popping up in your available programs. You'll recognize them because of the banner on the class's thumbnail image that says register now. Click the program to register, then log into CFITrainer.net at the time of the class to see the link to join. After the class, you'll see a post-event activities page where you can take the skills challenge test to earn your certificate and view any resources your instructor has made available to class attendees. We'll be kicking off the launch of live classes and events with a free class on May 12th about how to get the most out of CFITrainer.net, so keep an eye out for that in your available programs list and click the entry to register. As always, we welcome your feedback, so please let us know what you think about the new live classes and events feature using the feedback form on this podcast page. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from the Fire Prevention and Safety Grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. We are awaiting word on the status of the IWI's FPNS grant application for the last cycle. In the meantime, if you're getting value out of CFITrainer.net, whether it's this podcast or our training modules, please consider donating to the network's upkeep so the training remains available to everyone who cares about fire investigation. In the top navigation menu, click About Us, then choose Donate Now. We appreciate your support. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next time. For the IWI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.